0: Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast, the number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff, no more vanity metrics, live from India, made for the world. And now your hosts, Yag and Manish.
1: Welcome to yet another episode of the AVM Conversations podcast. This is me, your host, Manish Nepal.
0: And this is me, Yagneshwaran Ganesh.
1: In today's episode, we are going to discuss how you can grow your sales revenue and how to overcome specific growth problems. And to do that, we have with us Doug Brown, the CEO of Business Success Factors. Doug is a highly acclaimed growth expert who specializes in revenue expansion, sales training, and sales optimization. Welcome to the show, Doug, and thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me on the show. I'm very grateful to be here.
1: Uh, Doug, you have helped a lot of companies scale their sales revenue to millions of dollars, I also remember reading some background story about you that you started helping your family business at the of 3 You've also built over 35 companies over the span of your career. And you've also worked as a president of sales and training to help grow companies like Chet Holmes and Tony Robbins and Russ Whitney. And all these background stories sound like an interesting place to start today's conversation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey so far uh, for example, how did you help your family start the business at three? You studied in Berkeley College of Music and yet turned out to be a sales leader. Why didn't we start there?
2: Okay, be happy to. I did begin my journey at the age of three. Um, my father. I used to. Uh, I used to sweep floors for uh, what was twenty five cents a week in the United States at that time, and. I think my dad was probably just trying to get us acclimated because th- we have four, uh, four of us, uh, all sons uh, that worked in his business. We all started young. We didn't make a lot of money, but we g- started gaining some experience. So, um, but you know, at twenty five cents a week, you know, you could buy a, a, a handful of candy back there for one one cent per handful. So that was a pretty good uh, score at the end of the week if you wanted to go get candy. So I worked for him and then. About age six, we were put in front of clients uh, to communicate and to sell. I don't know if that was by design or by accident, but it worked out pretty well. And I worked with my dad's business till I was the uh, 18 years of age. Um, From there, uh, I always had built some side companies as well. One of them was in the music business. So as I grew up, I went into the military, came out of the military, and I wanted to go to uh, university and uh, so I took a job selling music equipment, and to my delight, I loved it. And I got to work with some of the you know biggest bands on the planet at the time, including you know Aerosmith and the Billy Joel's band and the Eagles and places like that. Um, so I didn't know I was in a sales job, guys, at that point, because you know all through my life I really didn't realize there was actually a position called sales. Until I was about 28 years old, because I was just kind of on this thing, doing my thing in my dad's company. uh, You know, then was in the military, went to went to school, and then I was doing my thing in this company. Um, But we really, it really to me wasn't traditional type of selling. I mean, we just we worked and had a really good time. And what I realized is, once I uh, got out of school and I wanted to enter into a, a career, I was getting paid far less for having things uh, as traditional. So for example, I got a degree in uh, nuclear medicine and I went to work in the hospitals and they were willing to pay me, but they were willing to pay me about half of what I was already making in sales. (laughs) So it didn't take much to put two and two together to make it four. Uh, I decided, you know what, I'll go and now go back into what I like doing anyways. And as I started looking for that, that's how I understood. Okay, companies really have positions as a salesperson, <laughs> and then I went on to uh, do that and was very, you know, successful by most people's measuring stick in sales itself. That led me because I was always building side businesses to combine the two type of businesses. I eventually opened a telecommunications consulting and auditing business. That led me into the training business because I was supporting training companies, which led me into working with people like uh, Jay Levinson for Guerrilla Marketing and Chet Holmes. Uh, and then I became Chet's president of training and sales, as well as you know Tony Robbins, president of training and sales, as well as Russ Whitney's president of training and sales. And what I was doing is I was using these companies that I was working for, just doing what I would naturally do for my dad's business which was let's look for blind spots, let's figure out what's not working, what's working, what could be working, what's not working optimally and let's fix those problems. And that's what I did in their companies and that turned out to be, you know, an additional tens of millions of dollars in revenue for them. So people sort of started taking notice and I started working with companies like Procter and Gamble and Intuit and Enterprise Rent-A-Car and, you know, large companies uh, across the globe, another one CBRE Richard Ellis, the real estate company, which is international. And then I worked with thousands uh, of small and medium-sized businesses as well, helping them do the same thing, just improving their sales, their sales optimization, and increasing their revenue.
0: Right, that's, that's quite a story in itself, uh, Doug. You know, uh, I couldn't imagine um, anyone kind of uh, building 31 or 35 companies over their lifetime. That's, that's uh, just brilliant. And uh, one thing that I really resonate with what he just said is that, uh, you know, uh, we both, Manish and I also uh, believe in starting few things as side gigs and then eventually that takes over to become something that is full-time. But now let's jump into the core of our conversation today. You know, the word growth, Right. So it's one of the most abused words, especially in the SaaS industry. Uh, And uh, it's never clear what people are actually talking about. Are they talking about growth in terms of revenue? Are they talking about valuation? Are they talking about headcount? So on and so forth. And on the other hand, you know, you specifically focus on sales revenue growth. That gets more specific there. And uh, you say that now, uh, you know, sales revenue can come from different channels when you look at it right? So it could be product-led, it could be coming from an AE who is trying to mine into an existing account. So, you know, let me ask you this, what is your definition of sales revenue growth? And maybe tell us about some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies make that impedes their sales revenue growth in itself.
2: We, we first have to figure out what the, what the outcome is for the company. My definition is growing the revenues from X to Y to Z. Um so for me it's a monetary value of okay let's say the company's doing 8 million dollars today and we want to get that company to 11 12 15 million whatever they want to go or you know anywhere in between 150 million to 300 million right so it's about growing those numbers but you're absolutely right right i mean is it valuation when it comes to saas i mean is it profitability I mean, what, what is the, the clear outcome of the actual revenue growth? Because, and I've worked with companies that were doing a billion dollars a year and losing, you know, 80 million on the bottom line per year. Right. And you could look at companies like an amazon.com business here in the United States, you know, where they lost money for a long period of time. So what is the strategic play that's going on for the outcome? So that's, that's how I define Sales uh, revenue growth from going monetarily to where we want to go, but based on the outcomes that we actually want to achieve. And what are those specifics? Like you said, it could be even headcount, right? Uh, So we grow the revenues at the same time we grow the headcount. Mistakes. I think the number one mistake that people make in not growing their revenues is they're not being brutally honest in assessing what's going on, not just with the processes, but with the people involved in that in those processes. So sometimes things are blocked from that point forward by people. I mean, I've always said business is so easy when you remove the people. That to me is the number one mistake they do. So one of the places I like to begin is going and taking a look at, okay, what is the baseline that they have right now? Let's do an assessment on that process. Let's figure out, is it the process? Is it the skills? Is it the the people? Is it the mind around what's going on within the organization? What is the actual uh, impedance? and and what can be optimized. And so I take a look at that right from the beginning.
1: Right, Doug, and this might be related, but uh, you've worked with a lot of organizations and I'm sure you would agree that every company is unique in some way and they tend to have their own specific nuances of growth. And yet not every organization grows, right? And uh, so based on that premise, what do you think are a few signs of businesses that are clearly on the path of growth versus the ones that don't have the growth potential? What could be the initial signs of companies that have the right foundation to grow versus the ones that are on the opposite poles of that?
2: Yeah, the massive prospecting that's going on, right? So the companies who tend to grow understand that the lifeblood of their business initially and continuously through the process is tied to the amount of qualified leads that they can get into their pipeline. And they have a high focus on that. So if you take a company like HubSpot, for example, I believe they're doing around $1.5 billion today. Their focus, even though they're a marketing company that sells marketing technology to people, now they have a sales CRM as well, but their business model was predicated around having dedicated salespeople going outbound to get the business. And they, you know, so it's consistent, right? If you look at any great company who's grown like a GoDaddy, um, if you're familiar with that, or any company that's, that's on constant growth mode, they have a high focus on acquisition of a client. And that all begins right with the massive prospecting in the beginning, not just marketing, Marketing is a component of, you know, you take the marketing, put it in play, and, and I define that as prospecting. So whether it's salespeople or whether it's marketing outreach or whatever it might be, but it's a direct outreach to get a direct response from the target that they're going after. That is the, one of the biggest things that separates companies that continuously grow from those who do not.
0: Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. But now, you know, since you've touched upon uh, the science of certain companies that are growing, the science of companies that do not, um, let, let us also uh, bring in some examples or something from our own experience. So in the past, uh, you know, Manish and I have been part of organizations uh, that have given excessive focus or excessive importance to growth. But in that journey, they tend to lose focus on critical aspects such as, say, profitability or revenue to headcount ratio. Uh, revenue contribution per channel and all those things. And if I have to get specific to sales revenue, you know, what I've observed is that the setting up of sales revenue targets in itself, you know, tends to be a little random. For example, what happens or what I've seen happen is that a set of executives gather in a room, they look at the previous year's numbers, And then they probably add a 20% or 30% to that number. And then that becomes the quota uh, for the head of sales or for the VP of sales. But shouldn't there be a list of things that people have to pay attention to or maybe a logic to that? You know, uh, in 2020, as such, you know, we have clearly seen that uh, some of the existing channels like events and conferences have already been taken away. So, um, you know, tell us a little bit about the set of things you would recommend organizations to pay attention to uh, when they are wanting to grow their sales revenue.
2: So, there's a couple i uh, to unpack that a little there's a couple things there. I mean, number one, growth I- with a loss doesn't make sense unless there is a strategic outcome for it right so, right so absolutely and some companies have that. Some companies will do that loss for tax benefits. Some companies will do that loss for uh gaining market share because they're looking for acquisition. and you know, I always subscribed to not just sales revenue growth, but profitable sales revenue growth. So, But not every company has that in mind. Um, I, most companies that I work with or talk to, that's what they're looking for. They're, they're looking for the leverage that comes out of growth, but in a profitable way so that they could use the funds of the profit to actually do other initiatives. I think you mentioned earlier before, you know, they get in the room, like the executives get in a the room, they go, oh, let's, let's grow by 20, 30% per year. Right. Right. The question is, is that doable? Right. They don't pay attention to, is it doable? I mean, I've literally worked with companies where we've doubled revenue when they thought that that was not doable. And it's doable when you look at the people and the processes and the systems, are there limiting and constraining factors that will definitely impede or stop that ability to grow? No matter how hard your sales team works, no matter how much you throw into that, is it profitable growth and are there impedances there? That's what a lot of people don't look at. Sometimes they have a sales team where they're used to being you know, a farming team and now they're going to say, we're going to grow by a third this year, so we're going to turn our farmers into hunters. But the truth is that those people who are great at farming in turn are not that great at hunting because there's a different sales DNA that person has. So it could be, you know, simple things like they promoted top salespeople into sales managers and now they lost a top sales rep and they gained a a sales manager, that's not really that good because the the profile of those two people are different. So we have to look at the processes. We have to look at the people. And I think that's one of the big places that people make mistakes. They don't look and say, okay, are we actually able to actually accomplish this versus just putting a top line revenue number there saying, hey, we're going to get this no matter what.
1: Right, right. In other words, uh, the way I'm understanding this is just because uh, the TAM is a billion dollars doesn't mean it's doable. You also have to look at other variables in front of you, uh, the competitive landscape, the people, the process, like you said. Lovely. I, I think that's a great line. And since we are talking about impedance that is also limited to the leadership of companies, uh, you know, one thing that Yag and I both believe, uh, Doug, is that marketers and sellers pretty much deliver what they are measured on. For example, if a marketer's appraisal is based on the number of initiatives they take uh, or the number of leads they bring in, then they are forced to optimize for themselves rather than contributing to the right results for the organization. And similarly, if uh, let's say the leadership doesn't believe in an idea or they have a mental block, then it also ends up blocking a lot of opportunities for growth or at least uh, the opportunity to try and fail fast, right? So uh, my question to you is: Have you ever seen a CEO or a business owner or the founder of a company self-sabotage their own growth due to having a mental block in their mind?
2: <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> without question. Um, as you were speaking and, and and asked the question, you know, one came to mind. Right? I'll give you an example of how, you know, even operational growth. Or the operations department could actually not not allow sales revenue growth to, to to happen and and have it be sustaining, right? So, I remember I was uh, early on in my career. I was coaching a, a gentleman, and he was doing five point seven million dollars a year in annual revenue. And on our second coaching uh, session, I discovered a way that we could probably grow his revenue and grow it pretty rapidly. And uh, I, so I said to him, I said, listen, I have this thing in my back pocket, uh, you know, and, and he kept pressing me. What is this? What is this? And I, I kept saying, I don't want to tell you this because if I tell you this and you implement it based on what I can see in your company, your operations department just can't handle the growth, right? And he And he said, well, tell me anyways. And I said, no, no, unless you promise me, you will not implement it and he said uh i promise so i told him our third coaching session he didn't show up i'm chasing him around his fourth coaching session he did not show up and i finally was able to get a hold he had a family company so i was able to get a hold of his daughters and i spoke with them and i said hey is your father you know is he ill what's going on and they said he is out of his mind at this moment <laughs> i went uh oh <laughs> what happened <laughs> right and they said, uh, "Now th- these guys built uh, buildings, like steel buildings. You know, they would build midsize or small sm- steel buildings for companies." And I gave him an idea on how to how to grow it. And they said, "I don't know." He he came back with this initiative. He said, "We're going to do this." We did do this because we followed him. We we grown from five point seven million dollars to eight point two million dollars in the last two weeks. And everyone here is so stressed and people are quitting. So the reality is that that revenue didn't continue to grow because what ended up happening was the CEO, the founder of the company, just got in their head, I'm going to grow this, would not look, can we actually expand with sanity? And do the people, are they going to handle that type of pressure that's coming along with all these deadlines and working all these extra hours and doing all this stuff like the entrepreneur would of themselves. And that's what stopped that person. I have seen this happen on companies that size. I have seen this happen on companies that are, you know, multi-billion dollar companies and anywhere in between. We have to look at the, the system that we have. Is it, is it scalable? at that point do we have the people do we have the process you mentioned leadership earlier do we actually have the leaders that actually when they grow to a certain place that they're going to continue to grow or can handle that kind of growth are we going to do we have a succession plan in place that if we grow to this place we have to we must you know bring new people in in order to upgrade the organization to get to the next level a lot of times companies do not look at these things and that's what i believe based on my life's experience doing this, gets them in a position where they're impeded.
0: Right. That's that's a very interesting point uh, that you brought up, Doug. So, you know, let me ask you this. So do you believe that um, companies need to bring in different kinds of leadership uh, when the companies get to a different stage? What I mean is that, um, you know, for example, uh, personally, I am more excited when I take an organization from zero to one or probably, you know, zero to two. But then uh, I I don't love when there is too much of process. Like I would probably hate uh, to be in a company where it's from a uh, five million to ten million space. So do you think that you need to bring in specific kind of leaders into this?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Google, they're a great example, right? Sergio and Brin started the company. They're two entrepreneurial guys. They're, you know, doing something in their their college, right? The, they built this thing pretty much in their in their dorm rooms of their of their university. And, uh, you know, (laughs) had so much bandwidth going on that they were kind of shutting down, I believe, Stanford's servers, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Um, But they grew and 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 they grew. When they started getting up into the tens of millions of dollars, they needed to bring in a CEO that knew how to take a company that was growing like that, that had the high potential rapid growth. And that's what they did. And that's in part part of the reason today that Google is Google. If they, you know, they're starters, there's, you know, people who like to polish, and then there's people who like to finish, right? So in your case, you had said, you know, I'd like to get them from zero to 100 uh, to one or zero to two. You're a starter by by nature, I bet, right? Um, are you a starter? <laughs> you seem to be a starter. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I am. So I love right? to begin things, but I don't like a lot of process.
2: Right. Right. Now, I am a, I would call them the middle one. I'm a polisher, right? I get in there with things and I go, okay, we could polish this and make this diamond sparkle even more. And so, you know, you also have to have finishers who can take that component of that and actually just keep carrying it forward. So, absolutely, there are people who, you know, at different stages need to be swapped out. I mean, if we look at any team, I, I don't know, football, you know, or, um, or cricket or baseball in the United States, right? You're going to have certain players that as your team shifts, as you bring other players in the team, now the, the team gets stronger, but you might have people who were strong before the team got stronger, who are not as strong now as the team is now. And those people have to be either trained um, and if they if we can't train it, then they need to go, and someone else needs to come in and fill that spot for the, the winning team to actually become a championship team. At that point,
0: that that makes a lot of sense. So uh, you know, let's uh, dig that a little deeper. You know, maybe something from uh, your own experience. You have a history of building thirty five companies. So uh, you know, what was the biggest challenge that you faced in growing your companies? Uh, maybe even feel free to include the ones that are that you're training
2: currently. Uh, my biggest challenge. Is I'm really good at the strategy and the implementation of it. But when my biggest strength is my biggest weakness. (laughs) So, you know, personally, I can create a lot of sales activity very quickly. I can do, you know, I mean, guy went from 5.7 million to 8.2 million in, you know, a couple of weeks. I can get in and I can help, you know, create that type of activity. Uh, But my biggest challenge is, I can create that kind of activity. And like many people who are you know, highly skilled in sales, I'm not as detail-oriented, right? So, so even in my companies, when I've had rapid growth in the company, I need to be smart enough to bring in polishers and finishers, right? Because I, I too can act as the starter. And so in my companies, as we've grown them, I can get them to a certain play, but then once you get them to a certain play, and this is where you probably don't like, right, you you get to a certain area, you got to start now putting standard operating procedures around that. And I'm okay doing that, but then the sales side will actually drop, right? You can't be everything to everybody all at the same time. So you get it up to a certain place. You've got to bring in that skilled talent that actually is better than we are at the things that we actually can do, but we shouldn't be doing. And I see that happening through a lot of companies. I mean, even Chet Holmes, when I worked with Chet, Chet in the beginning especially had his, his finger and his pulse on everything, right? But as we started to rapidly scale, Chet tried to keep his finger and pulse on there. Um, but, you know, he had a bunch of good people around him, including myself, uh, who went to Chet and said, look, Chet, you're brilliant at this part, now the team's here, and we need to do this, this, and this, and you need to step out of those roles. And fortunately for Chet, he was uh, intelligent enough to go, okay, that's great. And I remember talking to him later on in life, um, you know, wh- where we were uh, having uh, dinner one time together, and he he told me a lot of those roles he was doing he didn't like to do anyways, and they were energy draining and energy sucking, and so. When he was stepped out of that, we then continued to to scale. And I got in there and I was polishing all the way through the scaling. And, that you know, that's how we grew from a couple million dollar company to, you know, a 27 million dollar company pretty quickly.
1: The the way that you explain the growth, uh, you know, personification of growth in a company, I think that's the... That's the most simple explanation of uh, stages of growth that I've ever heard. So thank you for that. That was a really lovely explanation. Now, Doug, next up, we have a little bit of a game show lined up for you. And uh, it's called the rapid fire round, where I will ask you a series of uh, maybe five or six short questions, but your answers don't have to be short or quick like the questions themselves. So are you ready to get into the rapid fire round? Awesome fire away. All right. Question number one for you, Doug. And this is something I picked up uh, from uh, your social media feed. And the question is, if you could interview one person dead or alive, who would that be and why?
2: Oprah Winfrey. Um, Oprah Winfrey to me is the consummate person who has come from, you know, the rags to riches story. But more importantly to me, has come from a place where you know her emotional state growing up in the way that she grew up and the, the the I'll call it the tragic things that happened in early on in her life. She had to wrestle and deal with those throughout her whole life, and she was a person who stepped up to do that. So not only is she successful in business, from my perspective, she's absolutely successful in life which is a big thing for most people that they don't even think about. Like, you know, people sometimes ask me this question, you know, I wanna grow my revenue, right? And I'm like, okay. And my next question is why? Well, and they'll tell me why, you know, it's for a multitude of reasons sometimes. And they're like, I wanna grow though, but I'm so stressed out. So I ask them this first question, why? And then the next thing that I ask them to do is, what kind of lifestyle do you actually want? let's get very clear on the lifestyle and you know and build your business around that lifestyle so now you own a business versus own having a business that owns the individual right oprah to me is a person who has a business that she owns and she just kept forging ahead and, and kept growing her own Internal person. And that's what to me made Oprah as successful or successful in general in the business world. So I'd love to interview her, be able to pull out, you know, some of that. I listen to a lot of what she does and she's, you know, consistently talking about this subject matter because you can train on process, you can train on skills. But if we don't have the mindset in the right play, then that is going to sabotage. The process will still work, but the person won't do the process. Well, the skills will will work, but the person won't do the uh, the needed skill set implementation. So for example, a salesperson may not want to pick the phone up and make calls to people they don't know called cold calls. Why? Because their brain is wrapped around a frame that maybe their are uh, parents or whoever taught them, you know, you cannot interrupt people; it is rude, and they want to serve that, so they have to get around the mindset in order to realize that they can't serve people unless they actually talk to people. Um, so Oprah would be the person that I would—I uh, mean, if she called me today and said, "Hey, can you, you know, work for me in whatever capacity?" <laughs> I'd probably say yes, even if it was sweeping floors just to be around her because I respect her so much.
1: I recently finished uh, reading one of her books a few months back, called uh, What I Know for Sure, and uh, she teaches a lot of what you just uh, you know covered in your answer. And she's definitely the greatest of all time. So, great answer. Uh, next question, dog question number two is, uh, if you had to suggest one. One area to someone, maybe a business owner or a CEO or a founder that they could work on to improve their sales revenue, what would
2: that be and why? Prospecting is the number one thing that I would tell them to work on if they just want to purely grow their sales revenue. And the reason why is because that feeds everything else in the company. You can have the greatest closers in the world. You can have the greatest operations team. You can have the best customer service team. You can have the greatest product or service. But if you can't get somebody to talk to, to actually put that into their hands so that they can experience that, then the rest of it is just great untapped potential at that point, right? And so prospecting is is the life's blood of a business. You know, you want to keep that pipeline filled and you want to keep it with qualified individuals that you're looking for so i would say it's a twofold answer it would be prospecting and then how do we make qualified prospecting versus just getting a lead you know because talking to a lead doesn't really bring you there but talking to somebody who's pre-qualified and and uh qualified to be able to do business together that's the play so that would be the first thing that i would always tell people to do if they want to grow their sales revenue
1: awesome um, and talking about uh, sales, it's it's the profession where uh, you know you have to be a negotiator as well as someone who's handling objections. And you have been a negotiator, or and you know you have been at the center of handling objections all your life. Uh, and you also have a rule uh, that says be curious, not offended. So uh,
2: can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so. The, uh, the, f- the first thing I teach people in objections, and as you guys know, I wrote a book on this, um, is when you get an objection, take a breath, right? Breathe. Breathe before you actually even get involved in this, uh, this situation, which some people call objections. And the second rule is, is, is to get curious, not offended. And the reason you want to get curious is because we, most of us, growing up have been trained that if you get something, immediately resolve it. Now, you know, not to get into male, female differences, but men, you know, women sometimes want to talk more so and men want to solve problems. Right. So if if you have somebody, for example, who's a female who wants an answer to the question, but she wants to talk it through and you're just coming in trying to resolve it. What ends up happening is you're going to start breaking rapport with that individual now it's not just female to you know in male sometimes men uh throw out emotional responses and the salesperson or the person selling cues in on that so they immediately try to go and solve that emotional response and that's not what the person's looking for so getting curious means you ask questions in your head Before you start asking questions, if you, you know, if, if somebody's pushing back immediately and, and that person's natural tendency is to, you know, crush that or solve that or resolve it like immediately and then move on, what ends up happening is we can be offended by being the recipient of that information. You know, when somebody says, you know, I I just, I don't really like your company because I did business with them in the past. Now, if you have pride around your company, immediately, you know, the the, the sales person can jump into that or the the business owner can, you know, I'm defending my honor of my company. Well, now we're going to get offended, which means we're going to try to overcome this. We're going to try to crush it down. We're going to try to prove why they're wrong and why we're right. When you get curious, you're now playing in a win-win play. You ask the question, I wonder what might cause this person to make that statement. I wonder what the specific circumstances were in the past that this person has now carried it forward. Because obviously they didn't have a great, res- you know, uh, respect or they didn't have a great uh, situation happen. So let's discuss these things and let's get curious on and around and find what I call the real it. Because it's not your company, you know, is terrible in the past. It's more likely. I've had a bad experience in the past, so therefore I'm carrying it into the present right now and therefore projecting out in an emotional way, telling you this. But in truth, I'm really fearful I'm going to make another bad decision and that will come back to me. Maybe I'm going to be judged in my company. Maybe I'll lose money. Maybe uh, I'll be in a position where my family is, is uh, you know going to be compromised, whatever it might be. We want to get to that real it. And that's why you want to get very, very curious, just like a child who had a butterfly in their hand, looking at that thing, saying, geez, I wonder how this thing can really fly and what it's thinking and how beautiful, how to get its colors and, you know, all of this stuff. Why does it fly thousands and thousands of miles if they know that as a child, right? Those type of curiosity questions are going to come up and give you a far better win-win resolution, to an objection, because now you're not trying to crush it or overcome it.
1: This is a great answer, Doug. And uh, this absolutely transcends beyond our topic of sales and growing revenue and all that. So I think it's a great life hack for everyone who's listening right now.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And by the way, it works great in personal relationships, whether it be children or significant others or what it might be. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So uh, my question number four, next question is, um, and
1: I hope the answer is not massive prospecting, otherwise it would be a lame question. But uh, according to you, uh, what do most CEOs, founders, or business owners don't get about growing sales revenue?
2: Well, I would say most CEOs and most business owners were salespeople in the past. Most, uh, the majority you know, of people. The ones that are not, they don't necessarily understand the people side of salespeople. I just had this happen to me just recently <laughs> where I was talking, the company's growing. They've got great growth. They, uh, I started with them five years ago. They were about three and a half million. This year, uh, they will definitely peak over 20, somewhere toward 20 to 25 million on target still because they're still growing through through the rest of the year. And when they got to that place, the person who understood how to grow the sales revenue is handing it off to another department because they need to move on to some other, other type of task. And the, the reality is that the person handling sales understands sales, but really doesn't understand how salespeople work internally, not just externally, right? So when a CEO or a business owner, when they, when they don't understand the actual inner workings internally of how a salesperson works, they will tend to make decisions and those decisions are not going to sit well with their sales team. I'll give you an example of one. I worked at this company that were doing $50 million a year. And they, in that $50 million, they were doing things that were upsetting their sales team, upsetting the flow. They thought it was all about just, I'm bringing in leads. We can dump these leads on these people and we're going to force them to actually do this because they work for us. And so I did a a quick assessment on the company and I gave them back a whole growth plan. And uh, one of the things I told them was, you're going to lose 62.5% of your sales team in the next 60 days. And the CEO said to me, you're full of it. Um, that's not what's going to ever happen. I don't even know how you can make this kind of outlandish statement. And I said, well, here it's all written down and here's the reasons why you're going to lose your team. About three weeks later, I got a call. Their revenue now had been projected to drop almost 2 million that month. Right. And their sales team was defecting at an alarming rate. So it didn't take sixty days it took a little over three about three you know two to three weeks and they started noticing what happened was competitors which I outlined for them competitors were were actually prospecting their salespeople and because the owner was not a salesperson ever didn't understand how to treat a sales organization and what ended up happening was they ended up hiring me um but literally 65% of their team. So I was a little, I was a little light on the number by two and a half percent, 65% of their team was giving notice. So they, they called me back in three weeks and they said, you, I need your help. And I came back in. So by the time I got there a couple of weeks later, because I needed some time to, to, to get in and get going, evaluating the sales team, 65% of that sales team was going to leave. I ended up getting them turned around. It took about seven to eight months to actually get this all turned around. Um, they they were sliding. I I calculated their revenue, guys. They were going to go from fifty million to twenty one million over the next six months in their business. It's like five and a half months, and so I was able to turn it around and get get the team to stay a lot of them, a bunch of them left. And then I had to rebuild, like we talked about, you know, you get, you get people at a certain level. Now you got to rebuild the team and now you got to bring other people in on the team and so on and so on. And I got them back to 50 million. um, And that took about four and a half to five months to get them back to 50 million because they were sliding. And so once they got to 50 million, we then put in all of these uh, new uh, things for processes and things like that to grow, but based on what the sales organization also would accept and and sometimes tolerate, right? Because uh, sales sales organizations by nature they're 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 kind of they complain a lot, right? They whine a lot. But once he put that into place, I departed out after I got that. We got him a new manager in place. We got the sales team settled. Um, they grew from fifty million. Uh, to $110 over the next two years. So that would be the thing that not understanding how a sales organization actually thinks, works, feels, not just mechanically, but the people. A lot of times people forget that companies are not run just by systems alone. they, They have people that they need to run those systems. And when it comes to sales organizations or sales people in general or sales managers in general, they have a certain way about them that once you understand that, you know how to communicate with them. And once you, if you don't, and you try to put in these processes, it will create friction. And that was what was happening with the, my uh, client that I'm working with right now. And so we had this conversation this morning about how it's creating friction, and we worked it all the way through because they're smart enough to actually be open. Um, they're highly intelligent people, and they're they're open to that uh, you know situation that came up. And therefore, we are able to resolve this very, very quickly because now the sales team is settling down and they're not like, oh my gosh, you know what? I'm going to go work for this person or work for that company or work for this thing. They're back in there like, okay, you've taken care of us. We really appreciate it. And guess what? They're going to grow again next year.
1: What a great comeback story. I mean, that story of you uh, giving them the prediction and... You being uh, played down and you being hired again, that's really great. By the way, did were you able to retain the people defecting the organization or did you have to rehire a new team?
2: About a, a little over half of them stayed. Um, so, you know, they did lose almost half their sales team. Um, however... You know, some of them I would have taken off the sales team in time, anyways, because they weren't really performing the way they were supposed to, or they they were a disruption to the organization. So, you know, you can have high performing salespeople, and anybody who has these people will definitely be able to relate. You can have high performing salespeople. Who are just completely obnoxious people, right? <laughs> and and so what ends up happening, and this is this is in part part of the strategy that I use. Once I kept the people that I wanted to keep, I tried to keep all of them in the beginning, but as we were going through that and I was interviewing these people, I'm like, eh, they don't belong here, anyways, right? Let them go, and then we backfill them with better quality because, like, if you have a a, a glass that's full of water, and the water doesn't taste all that good you got to pour some of that water out and pour better quality water in, right? In order for it to actually be, you know, tasting better. And so this is the philosophy that I took with that company and the disruptors, I was getting out of the organization anyways. And the reason behind that is, and anybody who has a sales team that uh, has a disruptor, they could be the greatest sales, you know, producer in the world, you know, and this happens that maybe a team of you know, 20, they got two that are just knocking it out of the park. And they're very, very, uh, arrogant and, and, and and condescending to the other team members. Right. And they think that the owner of that company can't live without them. And the truth is they almost can't because they're probably, you know, 60% of the revenue coming in and out of the team. Right. However, you have to separate those people from the rest of the pack. And the reason you do that is because once you do that, you can train the other people to come up as long as they're trainable. And again, do they have the right sales DNA? Do they have the willingness to sell? Do they have all these attributes? Well, that can be assessed. If you have that, and this is exactly what I did. I separated uh, the couple of of people who wanted to stay. I separated them on their own island, if you will. And I trained these other people to come up. Now, what ended up happening was the people that I trained to come up became as good of, of a producer as the people who were at the top at the time the ones that I separated. Once that happened, then the owners went, oh, okay, we don't need these other people anymore. So now they went back and had those conversations with those people and released them or kept them. And they came into, uh, I'll call it uh, conformity, right? They conformed into the other team because they had proof that now out of those 20 salespeople, 10 of them were actually producing at the same level that these other people were producing that they thought they were the superstars. Now they realize they're not so superstarish. And what ended up happening is some of those people that were in the 10 actually started exceeding their revenues. And so, you know, a big dose of humility came in and and that kind of leveled out the playing field. But those who wanted to stay on the arrogant side and be disruptive, they were released out of the company because they didn't need them anymore.
1: Absolutely. I think...
2: You know, um, this kind of tells me
1: that uh, managing a team of uh, ambitious salesperson is all about people management and not really the numbers game that people usually perceive it to be. So great, great explanation. Thank you for that, Doug. Um, Now, moving on with our rapid fire question. Question number five is, um, you know, some salespeople use a sense of urgency as a tried and Tested technique to nudge their bias into taking action. Are you for it or against it, and why?
2: Uh, am I for it or against it? It depends. Mm-hmm. Are we doing the urgency for the benefit of the of both parties, or are we doing this for the urgency that you know I got to close and make quota, or you know I'm going to put a client in that's going to be a problematic client no matter what, but I'm going to close them right um, because I got to make quota. So is it self-serving to the salesperson? Uh, or is it a win-win play? Because there there are no bad clients. There are only bad decisions that are made to acquire that particular client. I was just shopping for a new vehicle, right? And, you know, they look at what I'm trying to do and they're trying to immediately throw me into a luxury car. And and that's not what I want. I want a you know, a different type of vehicle. Not that I don't care for luxury. I do, but I wanted, you know, an SUV. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? But they were always trying to bring me over and they would, test test drive our, our Jaguars or drive our, you know, these type of things. And they were just all sedans, but I'm wanting an SUV. Why are they doing that? Well, they had an overabundance of these luxury cars that were sitting on their lot that are getting older. And now the new models of 2021 are coming in. So they had some 2019s, 2020s. They're really pushing these things hard because that's their agenda, but that wasn't the right thing for me. So in any organization, if anybody's selling, you must have a sense of urgency. without question, but the, but my question would be, is it an authentic sense of urgency for a win-win? or is it an, or just we gotta, we gotta you know close the numbers and we're going to put anybody in whether or not they're happy or not happy. And if that's the type of organization that somebody wants to run, well, okay, you know, it's not the type of organization I want to work with. I want to work with the people who want to create a win-win for, for everybody. And then you can have a genuine sense of urgency because it's a moral obligation to help the client versus just extract money out of them.
1: Got it. Yeah. Well said. Uh, last question. Question number six. And this is based on what you said earlier about, you know, uh, some salespeople being disruptive in behavior while others gaining a dose of humility. So in your uh, you know, experience of training these salespeople, what do you think is one thing that cannot be trained
2: in sales training? Oh, will to sell. Mm-hmm. Right. So <clears throat> top producing salespeople have this, this will to sell. The will to sell means they're going to go through whatever they have to go through in a win-win fashion, right? To make sure that they are closing the client based on the fact that they know this is the right thing for the client. So they have this huge desire, internal will to to go through those things that most people won't. So I'll give you an example. You know, the... Statistically, you can people can look this up. You know, half the salespeople or so don't ever follow up with a lead once. 13% of them will only follow up three times or less. But the person who has will to sell will continuously follow up. They will continuously keep building the relationship. This is not something that's trainable because either somebody has you can you can train them on process but if they won't do the process right they won't make the phone calls they won't do the follow up they won't send the packages they won't invite them to events they won't do all of these things on a consistent basis because they do not have the will to to overcome and win then what ends up happening is that will to sell is a is an internal issue and that can't be trained in a sales context. That's got to be trained in an internal issue. But if they absolutely don't have it, because that's just not what they want, then you're never going to be able to train it at all.
0: Right. But at the same time, uh, isn't it also true that on the other hand, I mean, most of the sales people know uh, the the kind of accounts that are going to close like the back of their hand. So they kind of decide which ones to spend their time on and which not to.
2: Well, that, I mean, in, in intelligence, yes, for sure. Let's put it this way you can gain quick market share by pulling, you know, pulling the fruit off the tree, right? I mean, the easiest fruit to grab. And that's what a lot of sales members will do. They'll work with the people who are going to close now. However, if you look at the 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 numbers, which I do, and you look at over a year's period of time the amount of business that they're not closing due to the fact that they don't have the will to sell and they don't have the you know that inner desire to continuously follow up with these clients. Then what ends up happening is a percentage. Now Marketo did a study that said you know sixty two and a half percent of leads that would have you know that come in online based on their research show that they would close but they close over a one-year's period of time. So if the person doesn't have the will to sell and continue through and they're picking off the top 20 or 25%, let's just make the numbers easy. They're pulling off the top 22%, then 40% of that business that would have closed over a 12-month period will not close. So what ends up happening is it goes to competitors, and that's the sad part. But if you have a will to sell and a desire to drive to, to, to win – then what will end up happening is you'll stay with those leads. And this is where you see some top producers out producing other people um, because they're playing the long game. They're not playing the short game.
0: Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, we are uh, coming towards the end of our uh, show today. And so before we let you go, we wanted to ask you this. Uh, If we asked you for a parting message to be shared with our audience, what would that be?
2: Now's the time to put the pedal down in the world. Of selling or business growth, a lot of competitors, because of the pandemic and because of uh, economic, you know, reasons uh, across the globe, they're kind of s- pulling back and 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 kind of sticking their head in the sand and waiting for the tide to not come in and you know continue to you know go out until the tide gets close enough so that they know to pull their head out of the sand, right before they actually get the water over them. Um, Right now, if I could give any advice to anyone in how to grow y- your company, right now is time to put the pedal down and really start focusing a continuous and a consistent effort on upping your prospecting and your marketing play. The more people that you go out and the more people that you contact now, because your competitors are pulling back on that. Sometimes it it it's, it's it never ceases to amaze me that when companies start getting in a place where it's like it gets it starts to get a little bit of you know, tight, they start pulling back first on their sales, their sales team, right? They're like, let's cut sales count. Let's cut headcount. Okay, well now who's going to go out and get business, right? Um, Or they'll cut back on marketing budgets and on the sales side. And that's what a lot of competitors are going to be doing for people who are listening to this because they're afraid. However, if you persist through, you have that will to sell, you play the long game here and you just start putting the pedal down now and going after more and more and more and more market share. If you call you know if you if you made you know 50 attempts a, a a day or 50 attempts a week up that bring that up to 20 25 more or 50 more and work through that right now because what ha- will happen and this happens every single time because this is not the first uh issue that you know even globally we've had uh or certainly regionally that happens it goes up it goes down it goes back up again when it comes back up again when this pandemic, for example, the economic issues start to resi- you know, resolve themselves. What will happen is the people who push forward now, when the market share comes up and people are buying, you know, easily buying versus you know you having to really work for the business, then what will happen is your name will be everywhere and you'll be top of mind with people. And so when they're thinking, my gosh, you know, we got to buy X, Y, Z. Oh, you know what? That person who's been contacting me consistently, let's call she or let's call him first, right? So he or she first. Let's and and that's what will happen. So you'll see a real pickup down the line in your sales because you'll be positioned as the top of mind person for these people.
0: That's a lovely message. In fact, uh, you know what you said also reminds me of um, what Jeff Bezos said a few years back. You know, if if you're getting the right results or the uh, if you're winning right now, it's because of the efforts that you put in about six or seven months back, or probably even a year back. So these are the simple things that people often miss. So thanks for reminding that. And, uh, for the people listening to the podcast today, you know, if they want to connect with you, what's the best place to, uh, you know, uh, reach out to you for,
2: well, they get, they can certainly go to my website, which is business success factors.com. Uh, they can send me an email directly, you know, Doug at business success factors.com. Uh, my U S number is, uh, area code is 603-595-0303. um, uh, and, you know, my LinkedIn is, a, is another place that people can ping me at, you know, it's Doug Brown1234. Um, and, uh, you know, if they want to buy my book, that's another way of, of going. They go to winwinsellingbook.com. Uh, and, you know, I have some bonuses and things for them uh, on that as well.
0: All right. So uh, thank you so much, Doug. It's been a wonderful conversation uh, with you today. Thanks for really joining us. And uh, for the listeners, um, that's that from us in this episode. And until we connect with you the next time with another episode, this is bye from Yag.
1: And this is bye from me, Maniz. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations Podcast.
0: Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback thoughts and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you